Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The following podcast contains content some listeners may find distressing. If you find you are impacted by the issues raised, support is available at a number of places, including the National Domestic Abuse Helpline or Rape Crisis. Please refer to the episode notes for more details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Karen Treesman, clinical psychologist, author and trainer, exploring the impact of trauma at an individual, organisational and community level, particularly in this time of COVID-19. Hi, everyone. Really, really lovely to be here with Edwina. Um, my name's Karen Treisman. I am a clinical psychologist, author and trainer. I specialise in areas of attachment trauma and parenting, but particularly look at how do we support systems and organisations to become more trauma, adversity and culturally informed, infused and responsive. I always think you can't think about trauma if you don't think about cultural humility, cultural responsiveness, social injustice. To me, they are so interlinked. And with COVID even more, I think it's brought some of those injustices to the surface, like oil and water. They're very much aligned with each other, I think. Yeah. And when we talk about trauma, there's so many different ways we can talk about it, isn't there? There's trauma on the personal and individual level. So what's affecting you and I on a personal level, family trauma, community trauma, I mean, you could go on intergenerational trauma. So and clearly what we're seeing with COVID-19 is on all of those levels. So I guess what I'm keen to do today and to hear from you is what we can do on all those different levels to be helping ourselves and maybe helping our systems and our institutions to cope with what we're we're seeing. So if we start on this sort of individual level and how people might be feeling and coping What are you, first of all, seeing and hearing from people that you talk to and and what can we do? Yeah, so I think, as you say, there's so many different layers and levels within this. And when we talk about individual trauma, we can talk about a single event, such as when someone is raped or burgled. We can talk about cumulative complex trauma, such as um, long term sexual abuse. We can talk of medical trauma, such as after one's had a heart attack. Um, There can be uh, grief trauma, intergenerational cultural trauma, such as racism. So there's so many different levels and layers of that individual trauma. But I think some of the things that I've been seeing around COVID, um, and I just want to be, you know, I think people are talking about having a society that's traumatised. I think we need to be careful with that, because I think that 
many people are actually having a lovely time in COVID and lots of beautiful things are happening and people feel at peace and unity and connection. And many people are really struggling and it's one of their worst times and all the shades in between. So I think it is that whole same storm, different boat, uh, different waves, different access to life jackets, <laughs> a different time at sea. Um, and that's the equity stuff. But I think some of the common things I'm seeing is people feeling in a place of fear and survival, people feeling hypervigilant and on edge, people feeling in a space of feeling uncertainty, so they don't know what's coming next. So that feels quite overwhelming. Lots of people having fears about their own health, other people's health, Lots of impact on sleep. We're seeing a huge increase in people having nightmares, people struggling to get asleep, or all everyone wants to do is sleep. That huge exhaustion. I think we're seeing lots of people in a place of feeling that moral dilemma. Should I get that takeaway? Should I not? Should I go around to that friend? Should I not? I think we're seeing a lot of people in survival modes. And by that, I mean many people respond when they're feeling unsafe or threatened by going into lots of survival mode. So for some people, that might be dissociating, shutting down, operating in a bubble. Other people, that might be attack mode, snapping, shouting. Other people, their body's feeling that. So we're seeing people actually become more unwell, having headaches, rashes, tummy aches. Other people can't think. And so it feels like their head is spaghetti, so there's we're seeing so many different layers. And I think the additional layer, which is very aligned with you and your prison work, is that we're also seeing those people who had already experienced trauma, they might be falling down a time hole back to those other traumas. So where, for example, someone might feel powerless, helpless, stuck, where someone might feel alone, invisible, devalued. And so we're seeing lots of that or when someone's experiencing loss or grief. So we're seeing lots of those sort of relationships and histories. And then add to that someone, for example, who's currently living in a domestic violence household, someone who's currently living in a house that's overcrowded with mould on the walls, someone who is stuck in a prison, um, someone who is fleeing and trying to seek asylum at this time. So that sense of feeling unsafe and having this invisible threat and danger, I think we're seeing that at a huge level on an individual basis, even though everyone's unique and everyone's showing it differently and children are showing it differently. Yeah, so I was going to say, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? And that sort of dichotomy of some people having a nice time and life slowing down and they're appreciating the things that maybe they should have appreciated before. But then when we look in our prisons, there's a real double-edged sword going on there, I feel, because they seem to be coping quite well, which is great. Mm. And there doesn't seem to have been this mad outbreak that we all worried about. Mm. We haven't seen riots, but then, of course, everyone's spending much more time in their cell. Yes, that's the really hard thing at the moment is that there's a lot of unknowns. We don't know what we're going to start to see. We don't know the impact of being separated from your family and not being able to have visits, of not being able to do groups and interventions in the same way, of if there is a loss and grief that occurs. You know, 
all of those things that are at the moment up in the air and questions that we need to sort of watch and wait. But I do think it's that unique, different experience. And what's been really interesting, and I imagine this could be similar in the prison population, is some people I work with therapeutically are completely re-triggered by this. It sent them down a time hole. It absolutely crystallised the trauma that they were living with. It feels life is unfair, unjust and all the rest. And other people have responded really differently by this is nothing compared to the other things I've experienced in my life. People are making a mountain out of a molehill. Oh, I'm not scared of a little virus. Yeah. And one thing I was thinking about, actually, was, you know, I know lots of people who try and avoid the things that have happened in their lives by moving and going, 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 you know, hiding their emotional baggage through work and going out every evening and you know, the idea of them spending time alone or sitting still is just like hell. Mm -hmm. Um, And I imagine a lot of people will be in the position now where it's like, oh my God, I can't run and I can't go out to these parties and sort of, you know, do all the things that I used to do to avoid actually my past maybe catching up on me. I think that's a huge point. And I think not only do some people timetable feeling an emotion out, certain professions, the police are a classic who often say that they timetable emotion and feeling out, they put in that structure, they don't have the same reflective practice. So what's that like when you have to sit with your own mind and your own head when that can be a scary, overwhelming place to be? But as you say, lots of people's coping strategies and protective factors they've not been able to do. So if someone's used to running and keeping on the move, or if someone's used to going to the gym, or if someone's used to going to a religious place of worship, or even if someone's used to chatting to their best friends in the pub, but suddenly they can't do that, or their best friends are also full up and stressed. So I think not only are people left having a lot more time of solitude and isolation and to reflect, and that can be positive, negatives and all the shades in between. But I also think that people are having to find new anchors as to help them cope because many of their old ones aren't accessible at the moment. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to, to process. And you mentioned, I'm so interested in the idea because many of our listeners not, might not sort of you know be aware of trauma in its in all its guises but you talked about trauma manifesting itself in the body which I think is a very interesting thing to talk about and and because I think so many people don't actually put the mental health side of things and the health side of things together as one we still talk about them as separate health things which they're not Uh, so can you say a bit more about that and how trauma can sit within the body and what that leads to Yeah, completely. So I think that's a huge thing. I think firstly, if you think that often if we can't express our emotional pain, it often presents through our body. Our body, as van der Kolk will say, holds the score. The body remembers. And I often say to people, if the body could talk, what would it say? If the body could show us the journey it's been on, what would it show? If you just take And I won't go into detail because it can be a distressing, upsetting thing for people to hear. But if we just think of something like domestic violence for just a moment, think what you might smell in the context of domestic violence, whether that's cigarettes, whether that's alcohol, whether that's your own breath, someone else's breath, cooking. Think what you might hear. 
the banging, the shouting, the whispering, the police sirens, the knocking at the door. Think what you might, you know, feel in your body. You might be shielding, protecting yourself, moving. Think at the images you might see. So if you think about it in that way, trauma gets encoded in smells and sounds and images and in sensations. And what often happens in trauma is our brain can get overwhelmed. And so our left and our right brain don't communicate very well. Think about if you're driving and there's a massive traffic jam in the middle of the motorway. The left cars can't get to the right and the right can't get to the left. And that's what can happen, that trauma can get encoded into our body. But also think about what happens when you're stressed. Most of us get sick, don't we? We get colds and coughs and rashes and headaches. Imagine if your body is marinated and soaked in stress and adrenaline, how your immune system is being developed in stress. That's going to compromise your immune system, your regulation system, your sensory processing system, if your body is being marinated in that. So we see a huge amount of links in the body holding the score. And we see that in um, adverse childhood experience studies. And that can come out in things like autoimmune disorders, like diabetes, celiac, um, in chronic fatigue. We see that in the tension that the body can hold. We see that in headaches, in rashes, in all different ways that that body can hold so much of that pain and of that hurt in that non-verbal way. So there's a massive relationship to what the body can hold. And I suppose sometimes you can't do much about that, but you can recognise it when it's happening and therefore adapt your behaviour. So I know um, that when I'm stressed, either I get bad skin or um, or my lower back goes. That's an absolute classic. Yeah. Um, and I can't necessarily avoid that because often I don't feel stressed on the surface because I'm someone who pushes it. I cope and I'm fine. And I'm like, that's weird. My back's gone. I'm not, you know, and, and I know I haven't like pulled it or sort of, physically hurt it so I know what it is Um, and you can't always stop it but at least it's I now kind of go right the red flag has gone up I need to be a bit slower I need to just calm down a bit so that's useful in itself really useful because as you say that helps us to listen to our body's wisdom to notice it to see it as a little bit of a warning sign and a flag to all we need to pay attention what's our body talking to us and it sort of gives us a little bit of a clue and a sign but it also means that we can be a bit more proactive when we start to feel those things but also sort of kind to our bodies the other thing about body and trauma is it is physical. If you think about neglect, neglect is too little touching and relational poverty. Domestic violence is physical. Sexual abuse is physical. Your body has even been touched too much or too little. It's been violated, permeated, not cared for in the way that it should. So it makes sense that if trauma has been a body-based multisensory experience, that it comes out in body-based multisensory ways. And that's why a lot of our interventions need to be multisensory and body-based. All right. And so then when if we take it up a level, we've sort of, uh, sort of covered a bit about the individual trauma, covered a bit actually about family trauma there really with domestic violence or maybe just being separated from our from our families and what about on a community and societal level how does what does trauma look like there because you can't sort of 
do your back in and say that's community trauma? No, completely. So I'll talk quite a bit about community and societal trauma. The one thing I'll just bring up, because I think COVID's maybe brought it to the floor more than others, about that family trauma is how different family members, the dynamics between them are often coming to the surface at the moment during COVID. And what that's like if you go into retreat mode and tortoiseshell mode and your husband goes into shark attack mode, what that tortoise and shark is like. Yeah, so that's interesting. So that reminds me of, you know, obviously a personal experience I've had of when grief hits your family and suddenly everyone reacts differently. And then you can suddenly be like, oh God, well, I'm in retreat mode now, they're in attack mode and everyone's dealing with it in their own way. But when you bring all that together, it's a nightmare. (laughs) Completely. And it can feel really confusing and your window of tolerance is much, much narrower at the moment. People are stuck together. Um, So I think there's lots of interesting family stuff going on. Family members who are very attention needing other family members who were estranged and this has brought up all sorts of questions so there's some real powerful family stuff that I think and I think your example of grief is really really important how we can kind of come together or be split apart so I think that's something that I've been hearing from most people I've been speaking to about so that's been really interesting I think from a societal community level there's huge amounts that we're seeing. So I think from the obvious, we're we're seeing what I would call a traumatic fog, a traumatic air, where there is just from social media to media, so much stress and fear and, you know, people jumping away from people on the street and all of those things. So it's creating an air of hypervigilance and mistrust and fear and othering. There's a real splitting them and us. And I think that's huge in England, not just in England, in the United Kingdom at the moment, given that COVID has happened post-Brexit and we were already a polarised split society and this has done something else, some bits of unity, but not. I think that what we've seen is that real polarised responses and social media is the perfect example of this. We've seen either the most beautiful kindness contagion and things of unity and sparkle moments and neighbourhoods who have come together and communities who have stepped up in a way that they haven't before versus a huge amount of attacking, annihilating, destroying, huge amounts of anger. And I think, to me, anger is a bodyguard emotion. Anger is a mask emotion. Anger is a camouflage emotion. And what that comes from is fear, sadness, pain. And so I think we've got a society in that. But I think we've also got a society that is in mourning and loss, mourning for finances, mourning for connection, mourning for people's jobs. You know, there's a lot of grief and loss let alone those people who have actually experienced a direct grief and loss. So I think there's a huge amount. And one of the biggest things we've seen is the loss of routine and structure, that people's days can be like Groundhog Day, that the things that people held on to or looked forward to are gone. And I think that's making most people, not all, very dysregulated. Um, So, yeah, I think we're seeing lots of those 
ripple effects and the inequalities, the injustices, you know, how this is disproportionately impacting people from black and ethnic minority groups, um, how the homeless population has been responded to and what's going to happen when suddenly they're no longer put up in hotels. What's happening in social services when we think about they're talking about the funding cuts? You know, all of those, whose life is valuable? Are you still valuable if you have a disability? Are you still valuable if you're in a care home? So I think it's brought lots of those dilemmas and questions to the front as well. Yeah, and of course, the children, you know, sort of those from sort of wealthy families and lucky families like my own, you know, our children are sort of doing all right. But, you know, you think, and I've thought about this a lot, obviously, um, with three small children homeschooling and you know we've got laptops and devices and you suddenly at one point I looked around I was like oh my god we've got two laptops on the go two desktops and a tablet or two yeah. and then you think of those people in homes that do not have an internet connection let alone any device to hook up to the internet yeah. connection and those are the children who then aren't you know, getting the education, so the divide's getting bigger. And actually, a lot of your work has um, centred around the children, hasn't it? Yeah. And of course, when it comes to structure and routine, I mean, who thrives off that the most? Yeah. Children do. Um, children should have structure and routine. And I understand the difficulties of, you know, going back into school and stuff. But that that's really, a really difficult area. It's huge. And I think just to reiterate your point of obviously owning our privilege and what we have and thinking about those who don't have access to technology, um, including elderly populations, but also thinking about the whole online arena that's opened up around cyberbullying and online grooming and exploitation and, and that whole area. But absolutely, I think for children, it's going to be a huge thing about routine and structure but even just what are the narratives that teachers are going to say to them? What are they going to hear from other children? Are they suddenly going to think that every time you're sick, this happens? You know, so you we've got chickens and our chicken made a funny noise the other day. And my four year old went, the chickens got COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's really interesting how it's sort of going. And, you know, obviously they're hearing about it everywhere. We're all talking about it. If you've got yeah. the radio on or the news on, they're picking it up. But. Um, it sort of made me laugh and made me horrified at the same time. Completely. And it's the same as, you know, seeing people with masks and, you know, we know when a child hurts themselves, we encourage to go and pick them up and give them a hug. What's that going to happen in school? And I think the difference has been really interesting. So talking about kids in schools, you know, for some kids not being in school has been so difficult and it's been difficult for the parents the carers difficult for those children who thrive and love it but the interesting thing is many of the kids that I work with are flourishing and thriving not being in school not being in a place where their behavior feels like it is punished or that they are being bullied or that they feel they don't have friends or that they feel they don't fit into the box so again that's going to be a whole thing about you know those kids who when they reintegrate how they feel, what they notice, those who have separation anxiety because they have now had this quality time or um, I'm working with a lot of key workers, kids, they're worried what's going to happen to their parent, that increased anxiety, you know, washing your hands a million times a day. So I think there's a lot of ripples that we're not even going to be able to appreciate until this journey and time progresses, really. Yeah. And then so, so much of the work we've done together and, and your expertise lie in 
you know, that sort of, I suppose, a little bit jargony trauma informed, which is actually understanding what trauma is, knowing what it is and how it manifests itself, either in your moods or within your body. But then there's the trauma responsive element. So how do we now, as societies, as members of families, as individuals respond to what's happening? And I think whether it's hospitals, whether it's schools, whether it's dentists whether it's any of these services that at some point we're going to start reopening or we are starting to reopen now how would you like to see services and institutions sort of trying to respond to that because I mean it's such a big question what thing do you think people could do is it about slowing the pace down and like allowing people more time to talk and express and being more patient or how do we respond So I think there's lots of little things that people can do, and I'll list you some of those that might be a helpful starting point. But I think just to share with you, because I think it's been one of the most interesting, powerful reflections of COVID. And I was talking to our mutual friend, Stephanie Covington, about this, is that the organisations that I supported before this, who really were on the journey to understand and think about trauma, have fared much much better during this current crisis they are able to reflect they're able to connect with each other they're able to anchor onto the values they've been able to really make people feel held in mind they've been able to have a culture that is facilitative and even though they don't have a clue what to do about pandemic they've been able to anchor onto how can we increase safety how can we think about cultural humility how can we be curious how can we magnify strengths the values of trauma-informed practice Whereas those who hadn't started that journey, who I would say are traumatised and traumatising systems and systems that are unhealthy, they are more fragmented and disconnected than ever. And what's been so interesting is the furlough process, because that has made it come out even more. I've had colleagues who have been furloughed who are just like, Yeah, like it was done so beautifully, so empathetically. It was communicated really carefully. I feel really held in mind. I feel really checked in. These things happen. They're going to come back with a feeling about that organisation who cared about them, who looked about them, who humanised them. And then my other colleagues who felt redundant, shamed, that there was other people who were favourited, that it was that was bullying, that was poorly communicated, that there wasn't thought behind it, they're going to go back to that organisation feeling resentful, angry and all the other things. So when we're talking about trauma-informed, that's what organisations can start to think. What are we doing in this time to make people feel seen, heard, acknowledged, validated? What can we do to look at each value of trauma-informed practice from safety and trust to hope, to curiosity, to collaboration, transparency? What can we do to really think about how we can enrich that? And how do we listen to people's voices? How do we look at what people need? How do we take some time to think about what lessons have we learned? What do we not want to go back? What has this given us a gift to think about moving forward? There's structures, reflective practice, supervision, access to clinical consultation, investing in training, investing in people. There's those tangible bits. 
but really looking at how can we look at our HR processes from a trauma-informed lens and how can we look at our staff well-being and that's what a lot of people saw as candy floss and rainbows before they saw it as a luxury as opposed to if staff it's well-being leads to well-doing as a charity in Kenya says well-being leads to well-doing so to me one of the biggest things is how can we acknowledge validate how can we communicate it in a really careful way and how can we really give opportunities for our staff well-being to be massively forefronted and when I'm in communication, there's a lot of CEOs and directors who are coming from lovely intentions that are saying things like, we know this has been extremely difficult for everyone. We're all in the same boat. I'm aware that I'm in a very different boat to lots of people. And, you know, it was like, this is the great leveller. No, this really is showing us that we are not equal no. and we're in different boats and that has always been the truth and will continue to be the truth for some time but this disease has really shone a light on that really has and I think that the directors who I've seen who are making a massive difference they're giving spaces to talk about people's different experiences what it's brought to life what the pandemic means and looks like to them what lessons people have learned thinking about how productivity might be really different at this time so but also giving people the education about what does trauma and stress act and grief now because grief and loss is so important what does that do to our minds to our bodies to our responses to society and helping people so that they're able to have the knowledge to recognize all of those things and knowing that people are going to be dysregulated Every worker should have at least 10 regulation tools that they can do themselves or with people they're working with to help to bring that calm instead of chaos. So, I mean, there's millions. Yeah, give us a give us a few. And, and many people might not really understand what dysregulation even means in a practical context. Yeah, completely. So I suppose dysregulation can show itself in lots of different ways. But in essence, it's when people are feeling a bit wobbly, a bit shaky, people are even are feeling a bit stressed, people are feeling uh, exactly they might have their hearts beating, they might be feeling so shut down or overly exhausted, they might be feeling very angry or frustrated, they might be feeling like an elastic band ready to snap. So it's in essence when we're feeling overwhelmed, full up. If you think we've all got sort of when we're in sync, it's when you're a bit of out of sync, when you're when your drama's kind of going off beat a little bit, and all of us show that different ways, but all of us are humans, so we all have times when when we have that. And I think what that's about is giving people, and that's lots of the training I do, lots of my resources I do, is about how can we teach, whether that's through body movements, breathing exercises, um, sensory interventions, whether that's through some cognitive things that we tell ourselves. Um, there's so many different ways about environment, about people you can go to. But I think we need to really prioritise how do we notice when we're getting triggered and how do we support people to understand that and how do we just honour and respect the differences where people are at and have empathy for each other. As I keep saying, be curious, not furious. See the what the behaviour is communicating. 
Yeah, so if you're in um, your office, which is probably now your sitting room or your kitchen or your child's bedroom, and you're having one of those days, everything's on top of you, you need to just go and take five minutes. What are some of the things that people could be doing in that five, 10 minutes, 30 minutes? Um, so it's tricky to say without showing you, but I suppose I've got on my website, I've put for free um, over 10 different techniques that people can use, which are things like hand breathing, which literally takes 20 seconds where you trace your hand and breathe up and down creating a sensory box, which my laptop is currently resting on mine, which has things that are calming for you, soothing for you, whether that be a you know, nice oil or a stress ball. It might be having a go-to song. It might be shaking it out. It might be having a mantra that you think about or an image or a stone that you hold on. Other people, it's a gratitude or a prayer. Some people, it's a physical movement like wringing a wet towel or having a doll that you can shake out or pushing against a wall. There's so many, some people find pacing up and down, left and right. So it's finding different things to work for you as an individual, because what works for one person won't for another. But they just reset your system a little bit. They just give you what I call a mindful moment or a brain break. Um, and I think we all and if people don't have those as an organisation, we have a responsibility to train and teach people in that and give them a whole treasure box of tools. And then they can find what works because that's the other thing. What works for me one moment won't work the other. So I need to have a few options, I guess. Exactly. And would and would these sorts of things sit? And I'm thinking obviously in big organizations that have HR departments, this yeah. would these would be sort of good tools for HR departments. I mean, obviously they are good tools for people on an individual level. Yeah. But I, I guess for me, uh, and from what I've seen through knowing more about your work and working with you over the years and Dr. Stephanie Covington. It's the fact that, you know, we always say you've got to go through something in order to get to the other side. You can't go round it. And trauma, it appears to me, is something that needs to be processed. Yeah, and yeah. if you don't, there will be consequences. So, of course, you can put it in a box, you can bury it down deep, but it comes out yeah, some yeah. way. Mm -hmm. so, I, so I guess it's about that healthy processing. How can we all, in a healthy way, process what's going on? Yeah. And that's a huge thing about trauma. And that's exactly it, is that trauma spills and leaks out. And usually it spills and leaks out, such as in the prison population, through behaviour, through violence, through signals of distress. It oozes and soaks out. And the word trauma comes from the Greek word traumata, which means to pierce, to wound. It is a moral injury. It's a physical injury. It's a social injury. So like with injuries, you need to attend to them and look after them and find ways to help them heal. So, yeah, and that's the same with grief, you know, that it doesn't just go. It's not an end point or a timeline. It's an ongoing journey. So, yeah, I think having that space to empathise, to name, to validate it um, and to find ways to in some way release it in whichever way that works for that individual person is huge. And you've mentioned the term cultural humility a couple of times um, whilst we've been talking about trauma and I just want to sort of touch on that 
Um, I think I know what you mean by that, but yeah. for the benefits of um, our listeners as well, can you sort of say something a little bit more about cultural humility and where that fits into this conversation? Yeah, so it's a huge, huge area, but I can give you a few sort of take-home bits for people to think about. And um, for those of you who work within certain systems, often the word that we use in the UK is cultural competence. Um, I have huge issues with that word because I do not believe you can ever be competent in someone else's culture. So cultural humility is about how can we be have humility and see someone as the expert of their own experience? How can we own our own biases, our own values, our own attitudes? And how can we have a position of curiosity and openness to learn about that other person's culture and how ours intersects. And when I say culture, I don't mean race. I mean intersectionality from gender to sexuality to language to age and all of that different intersectionality. But it's also about how can we think about our privilege? How can we think about making things accessible? How can we think about all of those different layers of social injustice, oppression, how can we hold in mind cultural traumas, racial traumas? So cultural humility is about really having a position where we are being mindful, sensitive, aware, open about our own and other people's cultural lens. Is that a lot about just listening to someone else's experience and not trying to say oh well I think it's this and I think it's that because I see that a lot sort of going on you know in life yeah just listen absolutely it's not making assumptions and it's listening and being with and being open to it but also holding in mind about what we might put on someone else might be very different to them. We might see someone's religion as being a really defining part of their identity. That person might feel it's a sliver. So it's thinking about absolutely they are the expert of their own experience. What can we learn? What can we ask? And if we do say things, owning that it comes from our own lens, our own bias, I guess the other huge thing about cultural humility is all of those wider things of knowing, for example, that most interventions we offer are very ethnocentric and white. Um, Thinking about when we're talking to people, how do we think about intergenerational trauma, wisdom, different types of healing? So it's owning that there's a much wider sphere of things. And that doesn't mean we have to know, but we need to have a position of not knowing that we're humble enough and have that humanity within that. Okay, and we could speak for days, hours, weeks, months on all of this, and I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but um, I think if you were to direct people actually towards some some resources, you mentioned the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I've read, which is absolutely brilliant. Remind me who that was written by? Bezel van der Kolk. Okay, and then other resources, other, I mean, obviously, there's your website, which we'll put in the footnotes and um, put any links in there. But are there other things that, you know, maybe simple things that if people were sort of having a, a moment where they needed a, you know, just something, a, a one side page to read, 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. So on my website, I've got um, lots of amazing trauma resources for free, as well as a COVID specific page. I think organizationally wise, um, there's some amazing short page stuff on trauma informed Oregon. Um, of course, Stephanie Covington has lots. Sandy Bloom has lots. Uh, my next book is on organizational trauma. In terms of the children, I think there's loads of stuff on mine. Beacon House has a fantastic website, um, Inner World Works. Um, I've got my Clear the Croc book and Presley the Pug. In terms of collective trauma, there's some amazing resources, which I'm happy to send a reading list if that would be useful. And, and you can share it with people on individual and collective trauma. But it's one of those things that there is a lot of information. And so it's, it's having to narrow it down a little bit because what you would look at for cultural trauma is different to collective trauma is different to medical trauma and so yeah but th those are some of the resources there's some great podcasts obviously this being one of them and it's on my website um but there's one specific for teachers for social workers um there's one specifically on racial equity and social injustice so yeah I've got lots of the links to my favorite ones on my website as well great well as always thank you so so much you're a sort of font of all knowledge and thank you for being with us thank you thank you for having me and thank you for being an all-round amazing person and for the work <laughs> you do. thank you links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.